This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Gospel this morning comes to us from Mark 7, 1 to 8, and 14 to 23. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. And now parentheses, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders, and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles, and parentheses. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do you disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then do you also fail to understand Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? Parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean. End of parentheses. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within the human heart that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly, for all these things come from within, and they defile a person. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Well, who here loves to wash the dishes? Maybe one or two? I don't either. And for years, we did not have a dishwasher, and six people living in one house sharing the same kitchen and no one likes to do dishes it wasn't that uncommon to hear the question how come there aren't any clean bowls but last year we redid our kitchen and now we have a dishwasher glory be glory be there's still work involved but it's better it's better but according to our text it sounds like jesus wouldn't have bothered with a dishwasher or even washing dishes by hand. He didn't like doing dishes either. So what's going on here in this text? It can be a little perplexing at first. Sounds like the Pharisees are advocating for uh, good hygiene practices, right? Washing your hands, washing the dishes, washing whatever you buy at the market. I mean, these are literally things I say to my kids on a regular basis. You can almost feel their exasperation as they approach Jesus. Were you raised in a barn, Jesus? Well, there was this stable this one time. And so on first reading, right, we can sympathize with the Pharisees for their desire for 
It seems to us good, proper, decent, clean practices. And why is Jesus against these things that we learn as children? Well, it turns out the argument here isn't so much about good hygienic practices, but about ritual purity and ritual cleansing acts, therefore religious acts, religious traditions. So, for example, the washing of food from the market sounds like a good practice. Probably we do that ourselves. But it really had nothing to do with hygiene. It had to do with the ritual sprinkling of foods in case the farmer didn't observe proper Sabbath observance in either the sowing or the reaping of the food or didn't follow some other religious precept or perhaps the fruit wasn't properly separated for tithes and so on and so forth. And so this wasn't uh, a washing like we might think of it, right? It was a ritual act that moved the food from the religious category of unclean into the religious category of clean. This wasn't taking your grapes or your tomatoes and rinsing them off because they might have pesticide on them. And these practices had become long-held traditions, some of which had grounding in scripture, but more so in their uh, developing oral tradition. But regardless of that, what were the consequences of demanding such fastidious practices? Well, some of the poor folks, peasants, day laborers, farmers, as mentioned, didn't have the luxury or even the information or understanding of how to go through all the proper religious precautions in their production or purchase of foods. And so over time, this developed into an elitist practice, separating the holy from the less holy. And this had the outcome of creating a hierarchy of holiness, right? Where many folks just simply couldn't measure up. And this was within the tradition of faith, right? But it also held up the long insider-outsider division between Jew and Gentile. Because the objection to washed hands was likely a reference to the fact that the disciples were already eating with Gentiles and eating food that was considered unclean. And so these actions by Jesus and the disciples threatens to destabilize the religious hierarchy, the boundaries of who is acceptable to God and who isn't. And of course, such a destabilization is never appreciated by religious people. Historically, we see this still today, people in authority like it when the people under them just follow the rules don't rock the boat and don't ask too many questions. In his book, Evolution of Faith, Philip Gully tells about somewhere. Tells about a time gathering with friends a few summers ago. He says a family joined us for dinner, who we had known for some years, and after our meal we moved to the porch for a visit. And one of the teenagers present began talking about his experience with organized religion. His parents belonged to a denomination that emphasized the practice of confirmation for its children, 
and at the age of 12, the child was enrolled in confirmation classes, the culmination of which was to stand in front of the congregation and on a Sunday morning answering questions posted by the pastor, not an unusual practice by any stretch. And the boy had been made to memorize very specific answers to the questions supplied by his confirmation teacher. This may sound familiar. And when the Sunday arrived for the boy to stand with the other children for confirmation, uh, he told his teacher he had doubts about some of the answers he'd been expected to supply. Say them anyway, his teacher said. I do what's expected. We've been over this. Well, the boy felt uncomfortable affirming something he didn't believe, but wasn't sure what to do. He took his place in line, marched into the sanctuary with the other children, and stood before the large congregation. The priest began asking them questions, working his way down the row of children, each of whom gave the predictable, memorized response. And the priest came to the boy and asked him the same question. The boy paused and said, well, I'll tell you how I see it. tell the pastor and the congregation in his own words what it was that he believed and didn't believe. Now this was a first for the priest and he hesitated for a moment was going to challenge the boy but thought better of it and went on to the other children who all gave the approved response. And as they're sitting there having this front porch meal and reminiscing about this the dad says every time it was our son's turn you could sense the pastor wanted to skip him but knew he couldn't. Each time our son said, well, I'll tell you how I see it. And Gully writes, this is a courage rarely seen in organized religion, especially by one so young in a religious culture that has emphasized indoctrination over exploration. Always good to question the status quo. And what is the status quo that's at stake in this encountering? Why are the Pharisees so upset with Jesus and his disciples refusing to follow these practices? I think because these practices help legitimize their authority. It keeps people in their place and it supports, right, the system, the identity, the structure that has been set up. It's how they understand who they are but as Jesus undermines it, he shows how this system and these practices are rooted in privilege, power, and fear of the other. And so he repudiates this exclusivism at its roots, first by quoting an old prophet, Isaiah. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. And then I love this part. It says he calls the crowd together. So he's having this engagement with the Pharisees. And he's like, no, 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 everybody come around and listen to this. Listen to me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile. It's what comes out of us that determines who we are. And so he's making sure people don't miss it. He's making sure that they hear. He's exposing the religious hypocrisy, which elevates some as righteous, which creates binaries of in and out and labels it all as God's will by ascribing it to doctrinal status. So it's a convenient process. Well, you can't question it. This is what God wants. 
But Jesus, as always, gets to the heart of the matter, literally and figuratively. First in his quote of Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then saying, listen and understand, there's nothing outside a person that can defile them. It's what comes out from inside that reflects the status of their heart. Sort of like the text we quoted from the Gospel of Luke. Right? The good person, out of the good treasure of their heart, brings forth good things. It is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And Jesus' action showed what was in his heart. Right? His desire for welcome of all people. Of destroying any boundaries that said, no, you don't belong or you don't measure up. And so it was this setting of food, of eating with others that was so upsetting to the religious leaders because Jesus was crashing through many of their boundaries and saying to folks who supposedly didn't measure up, who weren't of the right ethnicity, of the right background, or even of the right religion, Jesus was saying to them, you belong. You belong. The story is told of a once great city in which the center stood a magnificent cathedral that was cared for by a kindly old priest who spent his days praying in the vestry and caring for the poor. And as a result of the priest's tireless work, the cathedral was known throughout the land as a true sanctuary. The priest welcomed all who came to his door and gave completely without prejudice or restraint. His hospitality was famous, and people knew his heart to be pure. Well, early one evening in the middle of winter, while the priest was praying before the cross, there was a loud and ominous knock on the cathedral door. The priest quickly got to his feet and went to the entrance, as he knew it was a terrible night, and his visitor might well be in need of shelter. And upon opening the door, he was surprised to find a terrifying demon towering over him with large, dead eyes and rotting flesh. Yuck, says Jean. <laughs> Close the door. Old man, the demon hissed. I have traveled many miles to seek your shelter. Will you let me in? Without hesitation, the priest bid this hideous demon welcome and beckoned him into the church. The evil demon stooped down and stepped across the threshold, spitting venom onto the tiled floor as he went. In full view of the priest, the demon proceeded to tear down the various icons that adorned the walls and rip the fine linens that hung around the sanctuary, all while screaming blasphemy and curses. During this time, the priest knelt silently on the floor and continued in his devotions until it was time for him to retire for the night. Old man, cried the demon, where are you going now? I'm returning home to rest, for it has been a long day, replied, <laughs> to, say, to say the least, been a long day, replied the kindly priest. May I come with you, spat the demon. I too am tired and in need of a place to lay my head. Why, of course, replied the priest. Come and I will prepare a meal. On returning to his house, the priest prepared some food while the evil demon mocked him and broke the various religious artifacts that adorned his humble dwelling. The demon then ate the meal that was provided and afterward turned his attention to the old priest. Old man, you welcome me first into your church and 
then into your home. I have one more request for you. Will you now welcome me into your heart? Why, of course, said the priest, what I have is yours, and what I am is yours. This heartfelt, heartfelt response brought the demon to a standstill, for by giving everything, the priest had retained the very thing that the demon sought to take. And the demon was unable to rob him of his kindness and his hospitality, his love, and his compassion. And so the demon left in defeat, never to return. Now what happened to that demon after this meeting with the elderly priest is anyone's guess. Some say that although he left that place empty-handed, he received more than he ever could have imagined. And the priest, he simply ascended the stairs, got into bed, and drifted off to sleep, all the time wondering what guise his Christ would take next. Hmm. Something to chew on. The author of this story reflects that it expresses an impossible hospitality. An impossible hospitality. A hospitality that flings open its doors to anyone without condition. Wow. And I wonder how that compares to the hospitality we're used to practicing. Often there are conditions to our hospitality like politeness, respect, maybe a nice bottle of wine. And there's nothing wrong with such actions. There's nothing wrong with such actions. Such invitations prompt some of our deepest conversations and dearest memories. But the radical, impossible hospitality that Jesus embodies goes infinitely further than this. It is a hospitality that opens doors to those who are not a part of our circle, people that we might usually avoid, people that we, yes, even us progressive Christians might consider as other. Now this type of hospitality, yes, it can strike us not only as impossible, but maybe even offensive or dangerous. But it reminds us of the expansive welcome of God who opened the doors to us without measure. It reminds us of Jesus who had space in his heart even for those who nailed him to the cross. And so when we open our hearts, our doors, and our lives, even or perhaps especially to those who strike us as impossible to love, then I believe we are beginning to grasp how deep and wide is the love of Christ. Amen. You are invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.